This podcast is generously supported by the Jesus Bible NIV edition. With exclusive articles from Louis Giglio, John Piper, and Randy Alcorn, the Jesus Bible lifts Jesus up as the lead story of the Bible. It is available as a full study Bible, as well as available as individual Bible journals. Find out more at www.thejesusbible.com. Want to learn how to interpret and teach the entire Bible in a way that is Christ-centered and clear? Learn with us here on the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Let's let's then tackle some of the textual questions and things you brought up, John, before um, jumping into the Christ Center connection. I also would just be curious, Peyton and John in particular, as you take a big chunk like this, what is your intended philosophy typically for how much of the text you're going to actually read? Yeah, so I I typically probably read too much. Um, I think that that's probably something that I struggle with because I want to let the text speak, of course, but I think sometimes I, I read too much. And so then the parts that I skim, I don't have enough time to really explain them. So I think I need to do a better job at that. But I typically, so in this story, um, reading for Gideon really read, uh, not the entire first chapter, but about half of the first chapter and then really just summarize the rest of it. I think the whole setting the scene, uh, the Midianite setting the scene of the call of Gideon, uh, working through the prophet, that's what I read. And then the rest was summarized. So I just want to make sure we heard what you just said. You think you read the Bible too much in your service. <laughs> okay. So, so I think you're busting on me because you're trying to get a laugh, but let's just be honest. Okay. If you read all of chapter six, through chapter eight, it's going to take half your sermon. And so all I'm saying is when I, when I preach a narrative, I think that I often read probably too much of the narrative rather than leaning on doing more summary. If, if you're going to, if you're going to cover three chapters and then you're going to read three chapters, you can have about eight minutes to preach, especially if you only preach 30 minute sermons like Jeff. <laughs> you got to put your head on the pillow at night. John, what are you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I think I'm trying to teach my people to feed themselves. I'm not trying to to you know spoon feed them the way you do, and so uh, I do. Yeah, is that I, I, me or Jeff? I couldn't tell. Whoever receives it. <laughs> um, no, I'm just I'm just kidding. So, but no, when I do this, I do encourage them to read the text for themselves, and I'm trying to give them an overview of how to read and understand it. And so, like typically, I will read less. So I read chapter six, verse one through sixteen when I most recently did this, because I want to get, again, the background information and the introduction to Gideon and to God's promise all the way up through God's promise. Hey, listen, I'm going to be with you. And that helps me set up telling the rest of the story. And then I did, I did read uh, chapter seven, verse two, as I just read in the, and then I read the end of chapter eight, when I'm trying to, to talk about Gideon's faltering at the end of his life. And so um, I, you know, I, so I read those selected verses and then just told the story between and explained what was happening. Your answer was better than Peyton's. I appreciate it. Um, let's talk about, let's talk about the textual issues. Um, so biggest ones in six, seven, we can definitely bring up the trimming process. And then I guess Jeff seems to have a disagreement with how you view Gideon in chapter eight. 
So any other other ones we need to tackle as well? So I guess first would be the 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 first would be what do we make of the signs? And so there again, this goes back to the beginning of the whole judges thing of like depending on there's a spectrum here of how how much you want to see the judges as good guys or bad guys to to be simplistic obviously so i'd love to hear i'd love to hear jeff's thoughts on the signs first and then i'll be happy to respond well i think the signs uh was unsympathetic to get in uh after the first sign of the the fire uh, on the offering, uh, he's already at that stage had, yeah, God's revelation, God's word. And because of the emphasis on God's word, the Israelites did not obey God's word, uh, as it says at the end of uh, chapter 6, verse uh, 10. He had not obeyed his voice. Then he comes and he, and he speaks and, uh, yeah, Gideon says, no, no, I can't do it. But he gives him a sign. In my eyes, that first sign was enough. I'm sure it's not just, I'm sure I read that from some other people as well. That's not just in me. Because then when it comes to the fleeces stage, I think even the text emphasizes, I think he's Overly doubting here, overly fearful. Verse 36, if you will see of Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece. Uh, And at the end of verse 37, if you'll see of by my hand, as you have said. And so he does it. And then Gideon said, let not your anger against me. Verse 39, let me speak once more. Please test me. And God. So I think God was being gracious to him. But he was failing to trust God's word. So I think he was a a flawed rescuer in chapter six. The first sign would have been enough. And he wasn't truly trusting God's word. And hence the reason for the prophet this time too. There's a word of God theme not being obeyed and listened to in chapter six. That's my thoughts. That I got, I'm sure. I would would push back just slightly. I do. I agree that that Gideon is presented as an idolater who has not listened to the voice of the Lord. That's clear. But I do, I do think, so I think a key theme in the chapter is I, I agree with Jeff that it's the God's being merciful, but I think God's mercy is, is gradually transforming Gideon. And so I think it's a, I, I, I see it as part of the sanctification process because here's, here's what you have. Here's what you have happening in my, in my opinion. One, the first sign happens, you say it should be sufficient. Well, it was sufficient enough for him to go and to tear down the altars and to build an altar to the Lord and risk his life to do that. So we do see, and so I, to me, it's kind of a, and we can talk about more about this application, it's kind of the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And then the, 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 the fleece sign happens after he's clothed with the Holy Spirit. Um, and so I, I don't see, I see this more as, and I, I see the way signs, like I do think people try to use signs, you know, to like determine God's will for their life. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think signs are often used in the Bible to attest to the fact that God is, you know, savior. Like these are the signs that, that Jesus performs in John, for example. Um, you know, and so I, I see this as as strengthening Gideon, not just Gideon's faith, but the, the army's faith that God's going to use him um to to save and so i 
I'm a little more, even though I would say he is a man of weak faith, I, I, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to him because of Hebrews 11 and because of the, the spirit clothing him right before this happens. Peyton, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I mean, what both of these guys have shared is so helpful. And also, piggybacking on what John just said, I think that the Hebrews 11 commendation of Gideon has to say something about how we look at his seemingly lack of faith uh, through the fleece episode and then subsequent episodes. I think that the uh, the only thing that I would, uh, and I'm not pushing back on what John said because I totally get what he's saying. I think, though, that the people that are listening do not necessarily see this as, um, oh, the spirit has closed, clothed Gideon. And so, therefore, now that he's doing the sign, it's a way to vindicate and a way to verify. I think that most people take this as this is a, a prescriptive, uh, we can test God, that we should, we, should, we should put out our fleece. And so I think that it's really important that in addition to what these guys have said, of actually explaining what's going on here, it's to make sure that we do explain that this is not a narrative in the scripture that's been given to prescribe or to encourage any type of sign that we come up with in order to test and verify the word of God, which I think is kind of what Jeff was saying at the beginning. If you go with my line, it's a lot easier to address the fleece uh, putting out that people like to do because God's word has been revealed and we have enough there. And, you know, but yeah, I can I understand. Signs, that's the point. Again, I, when, I've, when I've dealt with this before, signs are given before the word of God is inscripturated to help strengthen people, strengthen people's faith. It is not something that's when I, when I preach it as my, I make that exact point. I, you know, this is not something for you to do. And I, I mentioned this even Sunday when I preach this, this isn't you saying, Hey God, if you really want me to take this job, then let there be no line at Starbucks today. When I, when I drive through, <laughs> then I'll know that, that this is mm-hmm. what you want me to do. That's not, no, you have the word of God. You don't, you don't need signs because you have the word of God. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how I, you know, try to make that distinction. But I do think I, I agree with with both that it is a danger that people people do use this text out of context. This podcast is generously sponsored by the Pillar Network. The Pillar Network is a community of SBC and International Baptist churches that are doctrinally aligned, missionally driven, and committed to equipping, planting, and revitalizing churches together. If you're a pastor of an established church and you're desiring to lead your congregation to plant churches, but you're not sure how to get started, Pillar could be a great resource for you. Reach out to them today at thepillarnetwork.com, thepillarnetwork.com. There's good thoughts on the uh, questions to bring up on the trimming process in chapter seven. I just think it's a lot of wasted breath, personally. Yeah, verse two is the key, isn't it? Uh, That he wanted to show that it was God that's doing the saving, not the people. So it's just getting it down uh, to a small number, uh, 300, whatever way. It could have been a different way. Yeah. I mean, I've been taught as a kid, these guys were the vigilant ones. They were the ones who would make good soldiers uh, who were chosen, the 300. They were keeping their eyes out on the enemy. But actually, that would actually defeat the purpose. It was to get the weakness uh, to show it's all God's saving. So, yeah, it was just to reduce the number. Two things I would say. One thing that I found interesting as I meditated on the text this time, as opposed to the times I've previous I've taught it, is that he tells the people who are fearful to go home 
but Gideon's still scared <laughs> and Gideon isn't sent home. And then he, he gives a sign. He gives that dream encounter to strengthen Gideon's faith, which I just, I just, I don't really have an answer for that. I just find it interesting. Again, God is just, you know, maybe it's, it's, you know, I'll, I'll show mercy to who I, who I show mercy and I'll, you know, I, you know, I don't really know how to answer that. Um, but yeah, I mean, going back through it this time, one of the things I've done is, is, I've studied some Jewish rabbis who teach on this and they do the exact same thing. It, and one of the things that's interesting and, and given the context that we're in right now, that there could be some pastors that could go a million different directions with this, but they say the the people who knelt down and lapped, the reason they were sent home is because they were used, they were weak men who were used to kneeling down and being subservient to foreign gods and foreign powers. And so they were sent home. And the guys who didn't, you know, but, but the text doesn't, the text gives us, it's arbitrary. It feels like there's no, the author does not give us any commentary on the instruction or the process. And so anything that we do to try to, to make it the 300 virtuous and the, the rest not virtuous is, is completely us reading something into the text. It's not there. Hey, do y'all, um, do y'all make anything of the fact that in verse one, uh, which immediately precedes what Jeff was saying is the key to that chapter. Um, do y'all make anything of the fact that the author leads off with then Jerubbabel and then explains, of course, that's Gideon, whereas in most of the rest of the text, uh, he's always classified as Gideon. Do y'all make anything of the fact that he's, he's called Jerubbabel there leading into that narrative? I, I do because I think I think the war is against Baal, and the and the war against Midian is is secondary to the war against Baal. So you think that's what that's what the the point is there? The author's trying to draw attention to personally. Yeah. Um, what about chapter eight? So Jeff, you said that you may have uh, some disagreements with John on his read of the the you know rejecting the kingship and and then the way he acts after what are your thoughts well, no, no, his, his rejection is his rejection is the way that he treats Sukkoth and penuel correct yeah Jewish so you, do you you have that in a positive way is that right john yes yes they, they yeah they refuse to side with god's man okay i i, I think they were weak and scared too uh, but this is where i think He's not acting like God. I think just as Gideon was weak and fearful in chapter six, I think these men are there like, oh, look, you've only 300 and these guys are still 15,000 of them. I don't want to partner with you. We could be in trouble. So they're showing weak faith. They're not getting along. So, yes, they are failing. But this is where I think Gideon is acting unlike God, where God graciously uh, was kind and merciful uh, to Gideon and his fear. Gideon is in contrast to God being vengeful. Uh, so I have a more negative light on Gideon in chapter eight. As a, uh, I think chapter seven is where he's at his most positive in my mind, Gideon. But chapter eight, I think he's starting to take things into his own hands that he's not commanded to by God to wipe uh, these guys and bring the judgment in my mind. So I don't see that in the text. So that's interesting. 
Yeah, I, I see. So a couple of things I would see. I, I see echoes in, in different places. I see, for example, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but when he's when he's talking to God and saying, hey, don't let your anger burn against me, it, 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 when he's kind of, it, when he's doing the flea signs, I mean, that that echoes to me, Abraham talking to God about Sodom and Gomorrah, where he's just like constantly, okay, hey, let's, let me go a little bit further. Okay, let me go a little bit further. And then I do think here, I mean, like, his army is weak and exhausted and in a vulnerable state. It's not all that um, ironic that part of this coalition that they're going against is the Amalekites who attacked Israel when they were weak and weary coming out of the desert. And so I, I just see this as uh, Sukkoth and Penuel, you know, not just showing weak faith, they're rejecting the man that God has used to save. And so he pours out, uh, he pours out judgment on them uh, for that. And just the same way that he does the Midianites. I see him as not just, I mean, the Messiah is not just a savior figure. The Messiah is a judge. And so God is not just merciful. God is judge. And so in the same way that he, at night, right at night, when is the, the judgment going to come like a thief in the night? At night, he takes down Midian. And then he, he judges those of Israel who do not side with God's man. And so I, I just see it. I see him as a Christ figure that, is both saving and judging. Aiden? Yeah, I I mean, when I word through this, just as one episode, as I said earlier, admittedly, chapter eight uh, did not receive as much attention. And so in, in explaining the text, I sided more with Jeff um, in terms of seeing this more as almost giving as a microcosm of, of the book of Judges as a whole of some kind of cycles of stronger faith, weaker faith. And I totally agree that chapter seven is kind of like Pete Gideon. And then we start going back down. So y'all um, think so it's always wrong for an Israelite to kill other Israelites? Nobody said that, John. Well, it seems like that's what you're saying. I don't see God commanding it here which might be different. That's why I, whereas uh, it's all, he's not mentioned God to yeah, bring so. vengeance. Uh, so, so when the lady kills Abimelech in chapter nine, even though it's not commanded and, and she kills this Israelite king, she's wrong to do it. Or is that God pouring out judgment on Abimelech for his sin? Yeah. Well, that was already prophesied and commanded. Earlier, prophesied, and and uh, so it was clear it needed and was going to happen. So I think there's a downward spiral in Gideon, which we see then at the end, and and you know I, I think there's probably a downward spiral maybe in all the judges starting off with the best at Othniel and, and gradually getting worse as well. And we, you know, Gideon in the end in chapter eight, as far as I know, he is the only one that actually led the people uh, to go whore after the Baals in verse 33. So, well, I mean, I'm sure we all agree he ended badly, uh, but he actually led Israel into idolatry. So I just think there's a downward spiral and he's not listening to the Lord uh, and going off by himself now in chapter I think, eight. I, think, take, I just think that ca- that comes post his rejection of the kingship, because up to rejection of the kingship, those are all correct answers. There we go. So, but we all agree I, that at the end, that at least by the very end, he's 
it, there is a down, downward spiral. Yeah, I think so. Anything else y'all would add on textual questions or debate before we jump into Christ Center Connections? There's a there's a lot to do there. We'll 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 pick that up in a subsequent episode. In the next episode, we'll pick up uh, Christ Center Connection and application. Um, and so uh, helpful. Obviously, it's interesting to see guys who have studied this a lot don't don't fall down uh, on the exact same um, spot on all these questions. So uh, thankful to have uh, to be able to do this in community and to, to hear different opinions on on the interpretation of those. It is, it is a challenge in narrative, especially when there's not commentary given by the author mm. telling you exactly why things are happening. So, yep. Good. All right. Well, we'll pick up next time with uh, the, the main reason we do this podcast, which is. The, <laughs> and so we'll, uh, this will be. So back. we haven't got the Christ and Christ centered podcast. Yeah, we have absolutely failed because we didn't get to Christ. <laughs> and we also said we read the Bible too much. And so we have <laughs> a lot of work to do uh, on this podcast, but we'll, we'll pick it up next time. for listening to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or text you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com and please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources.